0: To me, St. Nicholas has always hung around Christmas like some sort of rope. You know, it's that thing just begging to be pulled to reveal the magician behind the curtain. It's a magic killer. Like there's all this wonder in the air during the Christmas season, but we're only ever just one wrong move away from seeing it all disappear. Disappear, disappear, disappear. And that saying this name, Santa's business name, is pushing our luck, like roulette. Like maybe this time we'll say St. Nicholas and all of a sudden our holiday will fade to black and white. Presence will melt into textbooks, and our magical Santa will lose his mask and reveal his true identity, which turns out to be nothing more than some unnotable dry historic figure, King Henry II or Sam the Saturnalia urn seller. I don't like hearing this name. And it's gotten worse as I've gotten older. Maybe we all feel this way that we expect to see less magic in the world with each passing year. And part of that is that we have to acknowledge on some level that our Santa might really come from some vague notion of an old missionary or like an actual saint. But we keep this idea at arm's length, separated out, wanting to prolong the magic of Santa. Keeping our distance though, may be the one reason anyone believes it at all. Because as we pull back Santa's mask, we find something much weirder, wilder, much more unruly and it only vaguely resembles some old bishop. I mean, I never thought about this in all the years I spent avoiding his business name. But if Santa is supposed to be Nicholas, a judgy old bishop, then why does he fly? Why would he ever deliver presents? Why would kids have ever welcomed him into their homes instead of seeing him at church? Today on Creating Christmas, the story and the creation of St. Nicholas. In the early days of the Christian church, there was this woman. She became somewhat famous for how bad she wanted to become a saint. The story goes that she would tell anyone who would listen how much she loved God. She'd cry a lot about this love, and she even resorted to begging the clergy. Now, I'm not entirely sure what it takes to become a saint nowadays, but back in the early Christian church, there were a few stipulations. One of them being that you had to continue performing miracles after your death. So, unfortunately, no matter how much this woman cried about her love for God, if she didn't come back and make a miracle from beyond the grave, she wasn't getting into the League of Saints. Nicholas of Myra did get in. Which means, according to my definition, he was magical. I mean, we shouldn't expect any less from the man we're told was the original Santa, right? But this magic, this didn't come till much later in his life, or mostly after his death. That's when his spirit began to fly around performing miracles like helping sailors and reassembling chopped up schoolboys. But this was not the name he would have ever called himself. In life, he was just Nicholas. Maybe Bishop Nicholas. And as the stories go, he was a good, spiritual, generous man, if he ever lived at all. Yeah, this real person that supposedly led to Santa, he might have just been a myth himself. I think someone named Nicholas must have existed about
1: that time and in some way, was very important and influential in his area. But beyond that, I don't know that we can really say that any specific story attributed to him is is true. You know, most myths and legends do have some kind of kernel of truth to them, but after, you know, 1700 years, it's it's pretty hard to (laughs) dig out what that is. (laughs) I'm Joe McCullough. I wrote The Story of Santa Claus. I'm a writer and game designer. One of the kind of pieces of evidence we have that that this guy probably existed was, so after he lived in about the year, in the kind of early 300s, right about that time you start to see churches called the the Church of Nicholas or the Church of St. Nicholas springing up all through the region around Turkey and and the Mediterranean. And you also see the name Nicholas becoming a lot more common. So while this doesn't tell us any kind of thing specific about him other than A, he probably existed, but also that kind of his legend and his popularity was spreading through the region at that time. So there is a lot of kind of circumstantial evidence, I guess, of that. And and in truth, that's in a lot of cases, that's the best evidence we have of people for, from those times.
0: There's a fair bit of debate about this, but does it matter? What's the difference if he was real or imaginary? I mean, really. If he was a completely made-up character, or a mashup of several people, or if he did live? This was 1700 years ago. Does getting to the bottom of this matter? I'm gonna say no. The actual truth doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because just the idea of this man's life became so important to so many people. And so many traditions, Christmas and non-Christmas, were built upon it, that even if he never actually walked the earth, he is as real as anyone who ever has. If nothing else, it was history and belief that gave him life. And he lived in what is now Turkey in the fourth century. Best guess, real numbers? Sometime between 280 and 343 AD. And this was sort of a crazy time to be alive and Christian in the Roman Empire. Nicholas would have been born into a world where just being a Christian could get you killed, but then rise to prominence under an empire that was officially Christian. And not only that, it was a time when Christianity started setting out doctrine for what being a Christian even really meant. And it's possible that Nicholas was even a part of making these decisions it's probably all these different things happening at once during his lifetime that led to Nicholas actually becoming one of the first, if not the very first person to be sainted without becoming a martyr. Yeah, as normal as it sounds to us now, it's really weird that Saint Nicholas just died of old age and became a saint. So who was this guy?
1: So the first kind of biography of of Saint Nicholas is written about the year 700, which is 400 years after he died. And that's that's actually not something you're going to commonly find. I had to actually find the Latin version of it and and get it translated so that I could read it.
0: Quick side note, one of the reasons that I wanted to interview Joe about this was because he was able to have his brother-in-law, a patristic scholar, which is a crazy degree, you should look it up, translate the original 8th century text just so he could write his biography. So yeah, this first book about St. Nicholas is a little tough for the average person to find.
1: The really important source is a book called The Golden Legend, which was a collection of saints' lives in the Middle Ages. And it was kind of a, a Middle Ages bestseller, really, because um, it was very readable, if you could read Latin, um, <laughs> very approachable, and, and just a kind of collection of really fun stories. So that's probably where Most people kind of first encountered a lot of these stories of of St. Nicholas, and and certainly where we kind of draw on for most of the stories we tell about him.
0: And this is really what St. Nicholas is, what most people who lived well over a thousand years ago are. A collection of stories. We don't have a Hamilton-esque year-by-year account of his life. We have stories that outline who Nicholas was and what he did. And if we start at the beginning, the very first story, well... It seems like Nicholas Amara was meant to become at least a version of the icon he's now associated with.
1: You do have one really important story from St. Nicholas's youth. You've really only got one story from his youth, which was as a child, he was orphaned about the age of 14. So he was, he was from a wealthy family. His parents,
2: parents were wealthy, but, the, but they died. And father died of the plague, leaving him alone. His parents had been wealthy and left Nicholas a large inheritance. One day, Nicholas learned about a man in his town who had suddenly become very poor. The man needed to find marriages for his three daughters. But without any money to pay their dowry, no one was willing to marry them. So the father had decided to sell all three of his daughters into slavery. Which
1: which sounds perhaps harsher to the to the modern world than it was back then. It, you know, he was going to sell them into slavery to make sure they could eat. But, um, but nonetheless, you know, it's not a great thing. So according to this story, over the course of three nights, Nicholas...
2: That night, Nicholas rode to the family's home in secret and tossed a bag of gold into the window. Waking the next morning, the father and daughters were amazed. A miracle had happened. Now he will be able to pay the dowry for one of the daughters. The second night, Nicholas again rode to the house and again secretly tossed a bag of gold into the family's window. Waking the next morning to a second miracle, the father came up with a plan. On the third night, when another bag of gold was thrown into their home, the father raced outside. He catch up to Nicholas and wept, thanking Thank Nicholas for saving his daughters. But Nicholas made the man promise to keep his identity secret and to only thank God for answering his prayers.
1: So, in this, this kind of first story about him, you have both him as kind of a mysterious gift giver, um, which, you know, obviously will be a big part of Santa Claus myth, yes. but also, and again, it sounds a little odd to the kind of modern thing. To call him a patron of children when we're talking about daughters that were getting married. But of course, daughters were getting married much younger back then. And were still seen, you know, as very young women and thus children. So, yeah, in, in that sense, you do have this one early story that kind of foreshadows a bit the later Santa Claus. But then after that, I mean, you do have stories here and there about him and children, but there's certainly no more prevalent than, than his stories about other
0: things. Now, maybe it's just me. Maybe it's just who I'm used to seeing in stories about Santa Claus. You know, a character that basically from birth has a singular focus, a clear direction to be crazy generous and take care of children. So while digging into Saint Nicholas, I expected to find this one note type of person. Maybe even especially since I knew Bishop Nicholas's life is just recounted as a collection of fantastic stories. But that's not who Saint Nicholas was at all. Because even though this earliest story paints Nicholas as this patron saint of children, willing to give everything he owns to save them, this is only one part of who he was throughout the rest of his life. Or, really, his patronship of children only covers a handful of the stories he's known for. And, well, it wasn't even his biggest claim to fame. Starting even as soon as the second story we have about him. How he became a bishop at all. He shows up in this this town and basically shows up,
1: and and the Christians meanwhile are having a meeting there because their their bishop has just died, and um, they basically decide, you know what, next guy who comes through that door, he's our new bishop, and of course Nicholas walks through the door and they're like, congratulations, you're bishop.
0: After becoming a bishop, Nicholas did a lot to help the people of Myra and is remembered as having done tons of great deeds all of which are now categorized as heroic or miraculous. So eventually he became the patron saint of dozens of different types of people. Brewers, repentant repentant thieves, thieves, merchants, archers, 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 pawnbrokers, which is, well, you know, not normal for most saints.
1: I think the number of stories you have about him is, is slightly unusual. You know, most saints, you tend to have either one kind of famous story, you know, St. George and the Dragon. That's that's basically all we know about St. George. Or you've got a full kind of saint's life. But with Nicholas, what you really have is a, a real scattershot of, of stories. So I think perhaps maybe he just, he just came up more, you know, as you're sitting around telling stories or reading stories, there's just more to draw on for him than there are some of these other people. And, and I think some of them are actually a little bit more interesting, perhaps, than, than you get with, with some of the other ones. A little, just a little more
0: variation to them. Joe points out, actually, there's something even more unique about the stories we have of Bishop Nicholas versus other saints of this time. He's not a
1: saint who most of the stories are really about theology. They really tend to be about the practical. You know, he's a very practical saint. He he saves people from starving. He saves people from slavery. He he makes sure people can eat.
0: Just some of his greatest deeds were freeing the innocent, saving an entire town from famine, and while falling asleep at the biggest Christian conference ever while sending his soul to save some sailors from rough seas. Try saying that seven times fast. So as far as becoming a well-known, important saint, Nicholas had a lot going for him he did a bunch of relatable good deeds some magical and his works covered a huge variety of types of people but also one of his biggest miracles made him the patron saint of the type of person most likely to spread news thus his name throughout the rest of the world
1: there's actually several stories about him helping sailors and that's that is probably another big reason why he spread as a saint, because your sailors were your main kind of, the way news traveled in those days, you know, was through through actual people. And so these guys showing up and going, you know. Thankfully, St. Nicholas got us through the storm. People saint Nicholas? You know, and so that's, then they tell them and that's how it spreads.
0: So all of this was mostly in his lifetime. But in death, he became known for even more. Like I mentioned, Nicholas is one of the first people sainted without becoming a martyr. He died of old age on his deathbed. And according to the golden legend, someone just happened to be there to capture his last words right before he
3: died. I have hope in thee, O Lord, into thine hands I command my spirit.
0: Then his corpse became a pretty hot commodity. First, apparently, his body bubbled forth an endless amount of myrrh. You know, that same thing that had been given to baby Jesus. So that's amazing. But what's more remarkable is that his bones were stolen twice. Well, it's hard to say. Were his bones stolen two separate times or were each of his bones stolen only once? Because two sets of pirates stole his bones from the same tomb.
1: Basically, yeah, so he's buried basically where he, where he lived and then that area gets taken over by the, the Seljuk Turks. So the guys from Bara, which is a Venetian state at that time, see this as a big excuse to go liberate the bones from you know the evil heathens. What they really did was just raided the place that, you know, because saints' bones are big money, so they went in and grabbed them and, and left um, and sent them up back at their place. And then a decade later, you get the Venetians going and doing the exact same thing. And, and what's funny about that to me is, for that to make any sense, the, the first people had to have left some of the bones, and then the Venetians would come and pick them up. But um, according to the stories, that's what happened. And, and interestingly, the study apparently was done between the two sets of St. Nicholas bones, which are still in Venetia and, and the borough. And um, the science says actually there's a good chance they did come from the same person.
0: With all of this going on, it makes a bit more sense that Nicholas of Myra would be at the top of people's minds heading into the Middle Ages, where he would grow to become the second biggest saint in the world. Second only to the Virgin Mary. But what about Christmas? By the time the missionaries were heading into Northern Europe and trying to overwrite the pagan winter customs, Saint Nicholas was celebrated and venerated throughout the entire world. He played saint to dozens of types of people, including children but it was just a bit of luck that his saint day just happened to fall right where the Christian missionaries were looking to place a holiday saying it was total luck though makes it sound like Saint Nick was obscure which he obviously wasn't honestly the missionaries were probably pretty psyched with the way things worked out or at least they thought they'd hit this one out of the park by tying this new replacement holiday into the world's second most popular saint
4: hi my name is Tom German I am the author of Santa Claus worldwide if you take the depiction of Odin, and you dress Odin in the vestments of a Catholic bishop, you have St. Nicholas. That is exactly what St. Nicholas looks like.
0: And it was right about this time that we get one of the later stories of St. Nicholas, the one about cut up bodies, resurrections, and pub food. (laughs) It's actually more like a
1: fairy tale than it is, than a saint's story. But, um, so in this story you got three students, and again, by students they kinda mean children. Um, but they, they show up at this inn.
3: And they arrived in time for dinner. The innkeeper, taking notice of their money, poisoned their food, killing all three boys. he then tucked their bodies and chopped them up putting them a pickling barrel with plans to sell them later as hem. All of a sudden, St. Nicholas bursts into the inn.
1: This is St. Nicholas in his kind of full power, kind of blowing open the doors, and he's standing there in his full bishop robes, which is interesting because, of course, St. Nicholas wouldn't have worn bishop robes. There were no such thing as bishop robes when he was a when he was a bishop. But by this point, in the kind of Later Middle Ages, when the story is set, we do have bishop robes, and and they're probably red and white, you know, so this is kind of his first. Here I am in red and white, coming to save the day for children.
3: Terrified, the innkeeper fell to his knees, begging for forgiveness. St. Nicholas walked over the barrel and prayed to God. Miraculously, the bodies floated out unharmed, bringing the boys back to life. Back to life.
1: But for me, that was really interesting because it was kind of as close as I could find to that, that missing link story of at what point does he cease being kind of this Catholic saint and become this kind of fairy tale figure. And, and that's the kind of best story I got for that.
0: These two stories, The Three Pickled Boys and The Three Bags of Gold, they're some of the only St. Nicholas tales that revolve around children. And are pretty much the entire basis of Saint Nicholas being the patron saint of children. So to me, the missionaries using Nick as this costume for Odin were sorta sandboxing this much more multifaceted saint into just one thing. I sorta can't help myself from thinking about the genie from Aladdin as a comparison. Phenomenal Phenomenal cosmic cosmic power! Power. Now it's a little bit more than likely that since this was taking place in Northern Europe and the Vikings knew about St. Nicholas as the patron saint of sailing, that society had at least an idea of Nicholas's greater roles in Christianity. But over the next few hundred years, he would lose more and more of these non-holiday traits and fully take on this winter gift-bringer role. Now real quick, just to clarify, this whole St. Nicholas gift-bringer experience, this was all taking place on his saint day, December 6th. This is all happening on that earlier Northern European holiday timeline. So while we do have this religious gift bringer who's physically visiting during the winter holiday season, he's not a part of Christmas. St. Nicholas at this point is his own thing. So what was it like to have a saint drop by with some presents? Like with many beliefs and traditions from around this time, there was a lot of variation. So St. Nicholas visited in different ways in different places. Going from the most hands off to what I believe is the most magical, well, the simplest St. Nicholas visit, it was like a Santa visit nowadays. He'd come in and leave presents while the children were sleeping. A bit more involved was the tradition of leaving out shoes filled with straw or carrots for St. Nicholas's horses. Kids would wake up and find that St. Nick had exchanged these things for treats or, you know, little gifts. Now, this was an identical practice to the pre-existing pagan tradition of leaving out treats for Odin's magic eight-legged flying horse. Okay, way more complicated, but also so much more interesting, were the in-person visits of St. Nicholas. This is what gets me the most excited. Alright, there were two kinds. In the first, St. Nicholas would arrive at the child's home, dressed in his Catholic bishop robes, and then he'd quiz kids on Bible facts and quotes. In another iteration, kids would show a visiting saint a stick where they'd been keeping notches for each time they'd recited an Our Father. Good kids, or those that at least knew the right Bible stories, would get treats, you know, fruits and nuts. Bad kids? Well, when it was St. Nicholas, the bad kids got nothing, or a switch, or at worst, they might be hit on the knuckles. But what about the really naughty kids? Most interesting to me was the second type of in-person visit, when St. Nicholas didn't come visiting alone. The pre-Christian gift bringers, like Odin, visited homes with a figure like Burkta, the Punisher. So as St. Nicholas took over this role of gift bringer, what happened to the punishments, the real punishments? What happened to the belly slitters?
4: St. Nicholas, as a saint, as a bishop, could not, in in good conscience, beat children or do all of the evil things that, at the time, they thought that would be done to, to poorly behaved children. So what they did was they had a group of characters that I call it, the evil helpers, but they are Satan-looking or satanic-looking figures that implemented the punishment. Saint Nicholas did not have to punish people. He had with him an evil helper who he kept on a chain who would do the punishment for him.
0: There were many of these evil helpers within this new holiday season. The most well-known twist nowadays is, of course, Krampus, a horned beast-like demon with a long red tongue. But we can actually still identify over 30 characters that filled this role to varying degrees. Sir Rumpelcross, Hans Muff, Zwarte P, Hans Trap. While not as specifically violent as Berkta, St. Nick's evil helpers were more well-known to whip, kidnap, and occasionally to kill naughty kids.
4: The evil helpers... A lot of people say, where did they come from? Why did they exist as part of Christmas traditions? The answer was they were the henchmen of St. Nicholas. They were the Luca Brasi, if you remember, the godfather of St. Nicholas.
0: Okay, so these four variable types of visits, while you're sleeping, sweets in the shoes, just Nick, and Nick was someone scary, they served as the general outline of St. Nicholas the gift bringer, which became more and more popular until it became a staple part of the winter holiday celebration. Oddly, these visits from St. Nicholas didn't really make their way to Southern Europe. St. Nick and all the gift bringers stayed predominantly a Northern European phenomenon. Now, throughout the rest of the continent and into the Middle East and Russia, St. Nicholas as a traditional saint continued to grow in fame as well. He cemented his place at the very top of the canonized saint pantheon. Well, right below Mary. Until he, along with every other saint, was outlawed. And the grandfather of our Santa went underground. And here is where we find the last roots of our modern day Santa, in the shabby wild men that Saint Nick became. Hello. Real quick. As with any retelling of a story that's 1800 years old, there are some discrepancies depending on you know, which book you're reading or how the author interpreted the original text. For instance, there are at least four notable historic Nicholases, and their stories are often mixed into the legend of Nicholas of Mara, and this has been the case for literally a thousand years. Also, there are other researchers that have made different inferences based on their studies. Our dive into Saint Nicholas left out one prevalent story that I don't want to leave without sharing. It's often cited as part of the transition, if not the moment of transition, from St. Nicholas the Saint to St. Nicholas the Annual Gift Giver. The story involves a group of French nuns who decided to give away presents one year in honor of St. Nicholas's story, The Three Bags of Gold. Now this is a widely cited event, but it has no specific reference throughout any available text, so it seems likely that this is a piece of folk history. It's even possible that the nuns did actually give away presents, but it's less likely that one convent in one part of France began the entire gift-giving holiday tradition than it is that Saint Nicholas's placement over the existing Northern European gift-giving celebrations led to the spread of Saint Nick, the gift giver. All right, special thanks today to Joseph McCullough and his book, The Story of Santa Claus. I love this book because it's really approachable and covers so much of the myth while helping to fill in the gaps in the history. We brushed over many of the best-known stories of St. Nicholas, so I encourage you to get this book and read more for yourself. Also, again, thanks to Tom German and his book, Santa Claus Worldwide. His was actually the first interview for this season, and as i found for the last few years, each season's first interview ends up being a real treasure trove. So, thanks, Tom. Today's episode of Creating Christmas was produced by me, Bobby Christian. This is a Civil Matador podcast. Find photos, links, and even more Christmas on creatingchristmaspodcast.com. And it would be awesome if you would leave comments and ratings on your favorite podcast platform. Okay, until next time, stay jolly.